morning. I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 10 and have a good time today in this chapter. Everything seems to have been leading very clearly from one chapter to the next. One of the great things about Romans is that it is a point after point after point building up a case, an argument, a defense, as it's often called, the book of Romans. It's called an apology, which really means speaking out for or a defense of Paul's point that has to do with salvation. And so by the time we get to chapter 10, we're ready for some of the things that he's saying. This is verses 1 through 13. If you would stand as we read God's word together. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words from Paul. They are encouraging words, but they are also challenging words. And so I pray that you would help us to understand them well, apply them to our lives well, and Lord, to be changed by them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right. This is a very often quoted passage, and I will say very often misused passage. So let's first acknowledge that the word believe occurs three times in three verses at the end of it, and this is not the first time that we've seen the word believe in Romans. In chapter 4, verse 3, for example, Paul wrote, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, Paul quotes, And it was accounted to him for righteousness. And I believe occurs another nine times in the letter. So, believe is is a simple word in the way at least that we usually mean it. For the average person to say that they believe in something means that they have credible evidence that suggests that something is true. For example, I believe that it will not rain this week because the weather is predicting strongly that it'll be sunny skies except for Thursday and Friday, hot days coming, right? And 0% chance of rain. I believe the sun will rise tomorrow in the east because it has done so every day of my life. 
And so I don't know these things to be true to the level of 100% certainty. But I have a strong level of confidence that leads me to be able to say that I believe them to be true. Now I'm going to say something hard at the start this morning, and that is this. And I want you to think on it the whole time that we're together looking at God's word. If by believing in God, we mean that we have a strong confidence that he exists, that is not the belief that the Bible means. And it is not the belief that Paul says leads to salvation. So think about some of these passages found in other parts of the New Testament. In Matthew 7, starting in verse 19, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never, I mean, think about those words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. James 2, 14 through 17, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And my aim, friends, is not to rework or rehash the relationship between faith and works today. We've talked about that in the past. Recently, And my aim instead is to give you examples of true belief and to call you to imitate those examples. But it's however important to start today with the proper context. We cannot allow ourselves to grow lazy or complacent in our thinking that simply because we have confidence that God exists, that this means that we have exercised the type of living, true belief that Paul describes in Romans chapter 10. And that's why James says that we have to be careful. Not only in saying that we believe, but in also having a life that matches that statement. Or why Paul in his letters often exhorts Christians to examine their faith. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7? He said, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. And thrown into the fire. And thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So according to Jesus, there will be people who say that they believe. But really don't have a true belief or a living faith. And the result will be judgment. So this is very important for all of us to wrestle with. And James added, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things that they need, what good is it? In other words, we can say whatever we want, right? We can say whatever we want. But if our heart does not match our words and thus results in fruitful action, then most likely we're just saying empty words. And so we really want to be careful as we think about that today. And here's the point. Mere belief 
Mere faith that is not accompanied by a change in our moral fiber, our very character, our heart in the production of good spiritual fruit will not save us. And that's what James and Jesus said. So I wanted to look at some examples today, I said, of true belief. And I want to make this very practical, especially for you younger people. I want to challenge you to look into your life and I want you to ask, do I have this kind of belief? Do I have this kind of life? Don't be complacent. Don't just be confident that you've prayed a prayer or that you are willing to say that you think it's more certain than not that God exists. Majority of people in America still would say that in a poll. One of the best examples of faith in the Old Testament is Abraham. God asked him to do many things, leave his country, travel to a foreign land, trust that God would give his descendants the land of Canaan, even though Abraham would never possess it himself. He'd just live in tents in this land. He'd do many other things, but it was the request by God of Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac that truly tested his faith. And that test was whether Abraham was walking this narrow road that Jesus talks about, right? It's an agonizing road that's against the current of everybody else in the world. It's walking on that broad, wide road that leads to destruction. Would Abraham walk it? You can find the story in Genesis 22, and I'm only going to spend about three minutes summarizing it. Many of you know the story. You know how God told Abraham, offer up your only son Isaac whom you love. And as you think about that, even as you just imagine God saying it that way, right? Instead of Isaac saying, your son, your only son whom you love, God is emphasizing this is, this is your son of the promise. This is the one that we, I know that you love. And maybe saying that way made it seem, or it seems to us, as it might have seemed to Abraham, that God was harsh. But perhaps it was rather the opposite, that it reassured him that he could trust the Lord. The Lord knew what he was asking Abraham to do. Abraham was being asked, was being asked to sacrifice Isaac, his beloved son, and God was aware of the, what he was asking him to do. Genesis 22 describes how Abraham took Time early in the morning to saddle his donkey himself, to take two of his young men with him. With Isaac, they split the wood together. They bundle it all up for the burnt offering. They walk three days to the place where God told them. And on the third day, Abraham lifts up his eyes. He looks afar off. And I wonder, I wonder, even as I read some of those words in Genesis 22, how he, he got up early the next morning, not not delayed, right? Didn't sleep in because of what was ahead, but got up early. How he splits the wood himself. I wonder, what is he thinking? Is he puzzling over this problem? Is he asking himself, well, how can God be true to his promises if I sacrifice Isaac? What is, what is God asking me to do anyway? How can he remain a God of honor? He, he brought me this far promised me this son only to let me fail. There, there's so much more in that passage and we don't have time to cover it all, but I do want you to look at what Hebrews 11 says about it. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, though Isaac shall be your offspring, uh, your offspring be named, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which figuratively speaking, that's what happened. He did receive him back because he had given him up. You see, Abraham believed. And there's, there's a good use of that word believe. Believe that since God had been able to bless him with Isaac, despite the fact that both he and Sarah were for all intents and purposes dead with regard to further children, that God had the ability to bring Isaac back from the dead. They would return. That's what Abraham believed. He and his son and God would get the glory. And it would be a small matter because God, after all, created the whole universe, right? So let me ask you this. When did God stop Abraham? Was it when Abraham said that he would sacrifice Isaac? Was it after Abraham got up on the morning, especially after he got up early, showing his his strong intent and purpose? Was it on the second day when Abraham clearly seemed resolute upon obeying God? After all, here they have already left a day's journey from where they started. They've packed up everything. They've got sticks on the back, kindling wood. Was it on the third day when they see Mount Moriah there in the distance? What was it? It was when Abraham is standing there with lifted knife that God stops him. Abraham had faith, belief from the beginning, and as Paul says in Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But Abraham's action upon that belief proved that it was true. Another example of true belief and faith is Moses. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household. He had every privilege that you could want. The temptation would have been great to follow uh, after his family, his new Egyptian family, rather than the needs of the Israelites. After all, you know what that cost Moses to give up everything. But Hebrews 11, 24 says that by faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose instead rather than to be mistreated, right, by the people of, with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And if you look at that, Moses' faith is such that he would rather join with God and face persecution. That's what it means to face the reproach of Christ. He would rather do that then enjoy the pleasures of sin and life in Egypt and, and ignore God's people. And how does Hebrews describe that choice? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. Greater wealth than the treasures in Egypt because he was looking to the reward, the right reward, right? Not a huge bank account, not a huge investment account on earth, but reward in heaven. And that's important, friends. Like Abraham, Moses looks to this future reward. When Abraham left his 
left his land and set up a tent in Canaan. He knew he was not going to possess it, and yet he looked forward to future generations when God would fulfill that promise to his family. And so Abraham, like Moses, considers the reproach of Christ greater wealth. Moses, Hebrews goes on to say, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured to seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And in every test, Moses proves faithful because he endures as seeing he who is invisible, it says. So what's the common link between all of these passages? What does the rest of this section say? Others suffered. Mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment, stoning, sawing in two, killed with a sword, going about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, dens and caves of the earth, and as all of them, though commended through their faith, didn't receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And so the common link through all of these people and the other saints, let's say of Hebrews 11, of, of the disciples of Paul, of so many more, perhaps of you, is that they were so convinced in their belief that in the midst of testing, even sometimes when things were contrary to what the eyes would say to them, that they believed that God was faithful and it provided something better. Okay? Despite, you know, when we talk about confidence, it would be as if you had been told from the weather forecaster, which you often are, it's going to be clear tomorrow and it's, it starts raining you say to yourself, well, clearly the evidence is there that I need to not believe what's been said. Well, God says, when it comes to belief in him, that it will seem from an earthly perspective, certainly from your, your lack of full knowledge perspective, your fleshly perspective, it will seem as if what he's saying is not true. He'll talk about joy. He'll talk about future promise. He'll talk about all the things that he is for you. And yet you will be facing persecution. You'll be facing perhaps even injury and death. You'll be facing all sorts of things. And you go, from a fleshly perspective, from an earthly perspective, from the way I would filter through these things, none of it makes sense. I'm afflicted. I'm destitute, just like those saints described in Hebrews 11. And yet, what we're being told through all of this is that true belief means that we are so convinced that what we have been told is true by the Lord, that he has provided something better, that he has made a way, that he is the captain of our salvation, that we are willing, even in the midst of testing, 
to believe what our eyes do not see. And we're willing to give up everything for that. Now, I want you to contrast that with what the Bible gives you as an example of false belief. Namely, the Israelites in the Exodus. Now, these, these were a people that when they were rescued from Egypt and led through the wilderness, had an opportunity to prove that they truly had belief, like I've just been describing. They, like Abraham and Moses and the others, had the opportunity to consider the reproach of Christ, the, to trust in a future reward, which really means to believe that God could and would provide even when their eyes were saying something differently. They're in the midst of the desert. They're getting hungry. They're getting thirsty. Would God provide? And then when they sent in spies, right, into the fortified cities and saw their enemies armed, standing up on high walls, they feared to enter the land. Don't you think that every Israelite would have said that they believed in God? Absolutely, right? I mean, wouldn't they? If they'd been here today and... And were asked a question that, that I asked earlier, whether or not they believed in God, not only would they have said yes, but they would have been offended for us to even ask that because what would they say? Come on, we saw the plagues. We saw the Red Sea part. We have seen the miraculous work of God. He provided manna in the desert and quail, and water out of the rock. Of course God exists. We left Egypt. We walked into a desert. We ate manna every day. We heard the thundering upon Mount Sinai. Believe in God? Why would you suggest that we don't? Wouldn't we be doing the same thing? with our church attendance or our Bible reading and various other activities that we give as proof that we believe in God. And yet, how does the Exodus story end? When it came to trusting God's ability to save the Israelites to the extent that they would be willing to go to war against what seemed like an overwhelming, powerful enemy, the Canaanites... Just as God commanded, he proved, or they proved, that they really did not have the faith that they claimed to have, the belief that was true. And what revealed that? They refused to go in. They were afraid when put to the test. And so God lets them die there. And friends, something more, that's what, what's telling me, is that something more than believing that God exists is what Paul is talking about. You can believe that God exists and yet have your heart in rebellion against God. If we tell the lost that they may be saved simply by praying a prayer and not by giving up their idols, not without repenting, without yielding to God, without having a fruit in their lives in the midst of testing and challenge and trial, then we are giving them a false message. 
I would suggest that that message is just as dangerous as the opposite one that says that you earn your salvation by works. Both are false messages. So we cannot tell ourselves that simply going through the motions of Christianity, even being willing to declare to the world that we are Christians is enough, but we don't have to live for Christ. Especially as our faith is tested. Are we not telling ourselves a lie in that situation? How can we have any confidence that we are on that narrow road when the moment it gets agonizing, we step off? Jesus says in John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Don't miss that statement. Jesus says that those who believe have eternal life and those who do not, does he say believe? He says does not obey shall perish. And you can see how obedience is so closely linked as a fruit to true belief. In Titus 1, Paul says to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. That's fine so far. It makes sense, but Paul isn't finished. They, meaning those who are unbelieving, profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And again, that's exactly what we've been talking about. An unbelieving person can actually be said to profess God, just like 80 plus percent of Americans can be said to profess to know God, Say, I believe in God, but the body acts and denies what they are saying with their mouth. So the question for you today is, do your deeds, do your actions substantiate your profession, or do they deny your profession? Obedience proves, gives evidence of, the fruit of, True belief. They don't save you. Works don't save you, friends. That's the other side of that false message, but they give evidence for true belief. They're the things you look for when Paul says to fearfully examine yourselves or soberly mindedly examine yourselves. So let's, let's recognize in all of this that the saving work of God that God died for you while you were dead in your sins was fully based on his grace. It involved no work of yours or of mine. And the movement of the Holy Spirit to change your heart, to cause you to believe in and desire God, also fully dependent on the grace of God. That is a firm part, not only of our faith, but also the foundation of what we've read so far in Romans But God clearly does command us to obey him. And he says, if you love me, which you might as well also just give as a a phrase that means the same thing as, if you truly believe in me, you will obey me. How does the tree of your life look? Is it full of good fruit? We have a tangelo tree in our backyard that right now is full of little orange balls of fruit that look like Christmas ornaments. 
And every day, it seems, one of the kids or grandkids are up in the tree picking and eating fruit. And a month ago, around the Tangelo tree were a few other trees that still dormant from the winter had no leaves or fruit at all looked dead. It was very obvious contrast between this green-leafed, orange fruit-laden tree and these leafless, dead-looking trees around them. The question is, are you bearing good fruit? Is that what you look like in your life? Do you stand out from among the dead trees around you? Are you walking the narrow, difficult road, or are you still saying with your words, I believe in God, and and are saying, I believe the, the accumulation of evidence that was given to me, I think it's more likely than not that God exists. But you don't look like it. In Luke 14, 33, Jesus warns about the cost of following him. He says that any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Friends, there is a cost. It's why there is this need to to really dig in to see what true belief is. It's because it costs. Belief has an expense to it, and that is no less than putting to death our fleshly nature. And as Jesus says, that action's like going through a narrow gate. It's agonizing. There are few that find it or are willing to even go through it. Hate everything you hold dear in comparison. Not saying hate everything that you hold dear. In fact, he wouldn't say hold dear unless it was obvious he was accepting the fact that you love these things. But he says, in comparison to your love for God, you would say that you even hated them because your love for God is so great. Be willing to give up everything. Matthew 6 says, do not lay up for yourselves the treasures on earth. Right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He goes on to say that the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body full of darkness. You cannot, here's the point. A few verses down, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money It's a good example. There are other portions of the scriptures where other idols are brought out. And the point is simply, you cannot serve both God and your idols. The cost of serving, of truly believing, is being willing to give up everything for Jesus. And it's also the evidence of your faith. True belief causes you to make God your first priority. And so a good question is, if you were too soft on yourself earlier, the the next question is, is God your first priority in everything of your life? Think about what is the first thing on your mind when you wake up in the morning? Coffee? No, okay, pass coffee. What's the first thing on your mind when you wake up in the morning? Is it your spouse Your children, your parents, is it your work, school, money? What's the second thing? What's the third thing? 
When does God come in? Is it in that pattern time during the day when you get to that three-minute prayer and God suddenly enters into your day? Is that when that, that level of priority? Those are hard questions that we have to ask ourselves. Because if God is our first priority, then it governs everything else. It governs the coffee. It governs the spouse. It governs the children. It governs the parents. It governs the work. It governs the decisions that are going to be made and all of the above. It governs what you value. Do you love God more than anything else? Not long after Jesus spoke the words we read a moment ago during the Sermon on the Mount, that's when it was spoken, he had this conversation that's recorded in John chapter 8, verse 30, with some Jewish leaders. And it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. There's that word again. We've been dealing with all morning, believed. Many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So more the same thing, right? The leaders claimed to believe in Jesus. Jesus didn't listen to empty words. He gave them a test by which they could prove the sincerity of their faith. Would they abide in him? Would they give up everything to follow him? That's what, it, what he's saying. Would they trust him when things got difficult? Would they depend upon him for strength? Would they persevere? And so it goes on throughout the, the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 12 there says the Jewish leaders, this is interesting, right? Despite believing in Jesus, it says because of the Pharisees would not confess him. What does that mean? means if you aren't willing to publicly confess your faith in the midst, of, again, of difficult situations, then you should be concerned. For as John explains, the leaders wouldn't confess Jesus because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And there's the reason why it's so difficult. There's the reason. If you are more concerned about the glory of man you will get that on earth. That's what you'll get. But Jesus says later, if you are ashamed to name me before men, I will not name you before the Father. So what's the conclusion to all of this? We've learned that belief is more than believing simply that God exists. We've learned that many people profess to believe, but few have true faith. We've learned that a living faith is a gift from God, is maintained by God. It results in obedience out of love for Christ. It is a belief and a faith that is evidenced by good fruit of the Holy Spirit. When you truly believe in God, you are willing to sacrifice those things that are idols, especially in the midst of challenge. You are willing to choose instead to take on the cost to walk along that narrow, difficult path while the rest of the world goes its own way. And when you are tested, when you are tried, and the world notices that you have different values and words and actions, you are willing to publicly confess and name your Savior in front of them, even if it means that they would reject you. 
I was telling Wendy yesterday, I'm in Elk Grove. I'm at this softball tournament playing in these games. And all along, one of the guys on the team has been talking to me about um, his situation with his marriage and then his divorce and the fact that he doesn't, why he doesn't see me during the week is because his new wife and his old wife don't get along. And there's this whole, it was just getting, piling on itself on, and kind of a little bit of sordid detail. And, and he was, there was a camaraderie just by being on the team together. And then he said, because we had won several games, he says, I'll see you tomorrow. I said, no, I can't play on Sundays. And he said, why not? And I love this moment. I told Wendy, I love this moment every time I do it. Because it's the first time, actually, I've, I've met this guy before. It happens on planes. It happens wherever. I said, well, I'm a pastor. And there's, there's that, like, frozen in motion moment. Because you know what's happening in their mind. Is they're rehearsing back in their mind everything they've said to you over the last couple hours. Right? That's only part of what I'm talking about today. Because if I just say, I'm a pastor, that's easy to say. Will I follow up, not only with my life, but with my words, with Gary? Some of the teams that I've played on the past have been named things, I didn't name them, like 10 drunks and a preacher. That was there in their... In their mind, because I would I play often with city league people, right? And they'll go out and party, and so they they separate me out from them as being this odd out person. But will I be different? Not just the preacher, not just the pastor, but will I will I be willing to speak for God in difficult areas when they come up in discussion? Well, I'd be willing to stand for what is true, right? And live by my faith and name Christ before men? That's the question, guys. It's not just about saying I'm a Christian or I'm a believer. I believe in God. Yes, that can be uncomfortable in the moment, but people will work themselves around that. They may give me more space and tell me less things on the bench than they might have said. But where it truly starts to become uncomfortable is when I start talking about my love for the Lord. Where it truly starts to become uncomfortable is if I say, you know, we really shouldn't be talking this way or doing this. And I say these things partly because Wendy and I have had these conversations before and she will ask me, are you doing these things or are you just speaking them? And it would be wrong for me not to apply the same things to myself that I'm saying need to be applied in your life. Let's be real, friends. Let's let the cost of following Christ be evident in our lives. Let's report back to one another. Let's hold one another accountable to be true believers. So I hope you realize it was not my intent today to make you doubt your salvation 
beyond what Paul intends when he says to carefully examine yourselves. But I do hope that you've come to an inevitable conclusion, and that is true belief is more than just speaking words. And here's the good news that we hear in places like Philippians 1.6. Paul says all these hard things, like we've read today in Romans 10 and in other passages, but then he says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because your faith is a gift from God, a gift which he purposed before you were ever born, and he began in you, you can be confident that it also comes with the promise to keep working in you, to motivate you, to give you the energy, the ability to work that difficult and walk that difficult narrow road. That's the good news, friends. It doesn't depend on you. It didn't depend on you to start your faith, and it doesn't depend on you to keep your faith. But you do need to ask yourself, what am I living for? What am I living for? Because you do have a choice that when you walk out that door later today, you could leave saying, I believe in God, I am a Christian, and save the obedience and listening to God's word for the next part next Sunday. Same time, same place. But God says, no. Every inch of your life is mine. Every inch of your life is mine. I began a good work in you and I will complete it, but you must live in obedience to me. And the thankful thing is that we don't do it as a way to earn our salvation. We don't do it as a way to keep it. We do it because of gratitude for what God has done and is doing. Well, let's pray, and then I want to bring us to the table this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of true belief, of remembering that you began a good work in us. You are faithful to keep us in that work. You will complete it. You will bring full fruit to our, our redemption and our salvation But Lord, it's not the type of thing that we then just float. That we sit back and let things wash over us like a commercial of some guy sitting in a chair with the speakers and the wind blows his hair back. That's not us in salvation. Father, you've called us to get up off of the couch. You've called us to walk in faith to have you as our first priority, to count the cost, to confess you before men, to live in a way that not only are we different, but Lord, that that calls people either to an aroma of death or an aroma of life. In that sense, we want to be smelly Christians. Father, I pray that we would be the aroma of life to those whom you are saving. And Lord God, give us the courage and the boldness not to just say things like, I'm a pastor or I'm a believer. But Lord, to follow up on conversations, to ask about marriages, to ask about life choices and decisions, to be used by you for the gospel. 
It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Well, many of you